no chance. What's up, everybody? Episode 61 of the No Chance Podcast. As always, your host, Ryan. And unfortunately, Nate is not with us tonight. I decided to give him the day off because we are going to Hawaii tomorrow and there's a lot of shit he has to get done before we go. And I think it's important because you have to take mental vacations every now and then. You know, we are in front of this computer on a day-to-day basis. We're on social media on a day-to-day basis. We're paying so much attention to everything that's going on, our nine-to-five, our drama with our girlfriends, our family, et cetera, that you have to take a personal day off. For us, it's actually a personal week off, but that is beside the point. We are doing this so we can get our creative juices flowing and come back to work at 110% because that is what it's all about today. Episode 61 is a very, very interesting one, a very, very good one. In fact, we have a good friend of ours, friend of the podcast. His name is Ross. He is from the denim company titled Cambridge Denim based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Now, this is a very special episode because we had the privilege of interviewing that of uh, another brand owner. Now, it's not always the chance that we get to do this. And Having this conversation and being able to ask those started from the bottom type questions and how you got started and what are your inspirations and, you know, what's next is a very important conversation to have. And I think that for anybody that's a brand owner or soon to be brand owner, maybe you just have those ideas in your head or those drawings in your back pocket that you want to make into an actual thing. This is the episode for you. So I want you to listen closely, listen to what Ross has to say, listen to the conversation. You're going to get a lot out of it. We also cover the differences between East Coast and West Coast streetwear, and also a lot about where Ross got his inspirations from and how that applies to that of his own streetwear brand. So this is a good episode, man. Stay tuned. I got a lot of good stuff for you uh, throughout the episode, so make sure you listen to it all the way through episode 61. Enjoy. My friend is Cambridge Denim. Um, it is a Odyssey made denim line um, that is designed for the sneakerhead and the streetwear obsessed. Um, so really it's an, an Odyssey denim line that's influenced by both sneakers and streetwear heavily. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and that word, it, it, it was, was it Onsen? No, Onison. Onison. Sorry, No, you're Ar- fine. Yes. It's Bo- Boston, born and raised. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. So it's all good. My question is because we, we, we go through a lot of uh, different brands. We do a lot of different research, and and denim companies and selvage is something that we're not a hundred percent familiar with. Personally, myself, like it's it's something I'm just a little uneducated in, uh, which is why I like. I would almost say I'm kind of afraid of it sometimes because there's so many choices, so many cuts, so many types of denim that it gets pretty intimidating. You know, it's a, a paralysis by analysis, just with too many choices. So kind of go, go into, you know, what got you wanting to get into, into denim? Um, a little over a year ago, um, I have a day job that I work like most people. Um, they 
you know, we used to have to wear, this is casual, so like chinos all the time. And then they were like, you know, we're going to do away with this. So you guys can wear jeans every day. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get a nice pair of jeans. So um, I went out and I like hit um, IG accounts like Outfit Grid and Outfit Toss. And was kind of looking at what folks was wearing. And I seen a lot of APC. Um, I seen a lot of acne. Um, you know, I seen a lot of like Fear of God and other, you know, denim brands that are way outside my price range. But I really like the the minimalism um, of acne and um, APC. And I, I got a couple pairs of those and I was and I got them, particularly the APC, I was like, all right, these like I really was drawn to those for some reason. Um, I liked the minimalism. I liked um, that they weren't like necessarily distressed. Um, the fit, I was like, eh, this fits okay. But I actually looked online and people was altering them this way and that way. So I took them to the tailor and did a bunch of stuff to them. And when I got them back, I was like, all right, dude, pretty much perfect. I was like, why don't, why don't they make the jeans like this in the first place? And then I was like, maybe I should just make them like this. So that's really what got me started making uh, jeans and then any clothes after that. So it was built out of necessity, right? It, it was um, a need not only for yourself, but you would think, you know, there's a lot of other people that might, you know, have the same mindset as me and may not see, you know, there, there's maybe like a dozen or so denim companies that, I guess are pretty well known to, to maybe like the non denim aficionado, maybe like, like you said, the, the acne, the APC, maybe the naked and famous nudies, et cetera. APC, my personal favorite. Um, like I, there's something about the construction and just like the cleanliness of the brand that sort of attaches itself to the denim that I really like. But I think what it is, is, you know, because of how you know complex sometimes denim can be, whether it be fit or or inseam and length, a lot of terminology that's completely goes over a lot of people's head when it comes to finding a pair that's perfect for them, is uh, is it, it is complicated, and it, it's nice to see a co- or, or a person sort of act on that because you know most people just sort of deal with it, right? They take it to their tailor, they get another pair, take it to their tailor. Um, but kind of explain when you say, um, when you, when you were trying to find your perfect fit, right? What, how, how would you describe it when you would bring it to, to tailors? Cause I, I'm, I'm sure it was kind of like a, something where you were, I don't know, it was, it was would you assume it was kind of new to you to like bring a pair of jeans to a tailor? I mean, that process in itself is kind of like, how do I explain this? I mean, I've definitely, I don't know if I've ever brought jeans to a tailor. I think this is the first time I ever brought jeans to a tailor, but you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, I've, I've had to bring suits or, um, dress pants and stuff like that. So, you know, I was pretty familiar with the process, but yeah, I, you know, I really wanted, I wanted a pair, uh, I wanted a pair of jeans that wasn't skinny, but that would sit on top of, you know, uh, of my various pairs of sneakers. I didn't, you know, I didn't want something that was tight, but I wanted something that would be on top of the sneakers. So the, the fit that I have is, I guess, 
guess when I collect from the knee up, it's more of like a, a standard fit, like a, a mid-rise. So meaning that like um, the distance between the waistband and the inner crotch seam is about middle. Um, so like a like a, a, a low-rise pair of jeans I think that everybody's probably familiar with is like a Levi's 501. Excuse me, a Levi's 511. Yeah. And then high rise, high rise is, you know, I don't know any men's jeans that are high rise, but you can see a ton of women's jeans these days Definitely. that have a high rise that might go, go to their, the middle of their torso and, and beyond, I think. And, and, and tell um, me, where, and I, tell, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just saying, you know, I, I wanted, so to kind of bridge the gap between those, I, I needed to, um, I needed to taper the jeans they need to be to a specific opening i spent a lot of time comparing the leg opening to the opening on air maxes and jordan ones and um ultra boosts and uh, you know whatever else i could get my hands on really and that's a good point because not a lot of jeans i mean if you look at jeans like apc acne um i want to say like a nudies they're very tailored to a yep. specific look right you see yep. the, the types of lookbooks that they produce, and they're very Chelsea boot oriented, wingtip oriented. It's it's right. that's what those brands are built around, essentially. Right. And they were pulled from you know streetwear culture, hip hop culture, to fit to the mold of the shoes that we like to wear. Obviously, sportswear shoes and sneakers. So, right. Let's let's go backwards for a second since we're talking about okay. streetwear pulling influences from a lot of different uh, different companies that weren't originally part of that culture. Tell us how you got into into sneakers or into streetwear. How, where does that sort of originate for you? Um. So I, I you know, I don't know how old you are, but I I expect that I'm considerably older and. Um, in the nineties when I was in high school and even before that, when I was in middle school, I was a skater. Nice. So, uh, loved like hookups and fresh jive. Um, and from there, I, um, I think it was kind of a sort of natural progression to dip on over to like Polo Sport and Tommy Hilfiger, uh, Nautica, stuff like that. And then on from there into like, urban stuff um like uh triple five soul or mecca or any of those brands uh echo and um so that stuff's always kind of been with me um you know i'm not going to say that you know like two years ago i was wearing mecca because i definitely wasn't um <laughs> but I, i've always that stuff's always kind of been part of what influenced my style um, and, you know, whether it was, you know, if you're wearing vintage stuff or whatever, like that stuff it's always had a big meaning to me. Um, and so, yeah, I remember my first, my first real job that I got when I was like 19, I remember I had this opportunity to um, work like crazy overtime for a couple weeks and make a ton of money. And I remember I spent it all on clothes. I had like, the matching Mecca jeans with the Mecca sweater. And then I had the Air Maxes that went with the sweater. I had bought like five or six different outfits. I had like the green shell toes that went with this, um, this fat farm top. So that stuff's always been really important to me. And um, maybe like 
five or six years ago, um, probably, or maybe a little longer than that, you know, like music's always been huge for me. And I know probably like when I started hearing like Tyler or whatever, you know, talk about Supreme, um, I started kind of looking into that and being like, oh, this is kind of like, this isn't that different from where I live, left off all those years ago. Yeah, I mean, there, there. I, I feel like we go through resurgences of the things that we're into. We can, we can sort of tail off of of our interests, but something will spark it. And I think that's the amazing part of 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 having a hobby or having something you're passionate about is sometimes it doesn't take much to get back into it. Skateboarding for me is is exactly like that. You know, um, I don't have much time to, to skate as hard as I used to when I was younger, but I still have to skate to get to work. So that is looked at as my like my outlet of still doing the things that I love to do. And with streetwear, it's the same thing. You know, streetwear, streetwear is always going to go through its ebbs and flows because streetwear is a lifestyle, but a lot of the clothing is built around moments of time so obviously as we go through different decades it's it's something that is always going to bring upon new trends or reflect off of old trends and maybe a particular thing is going to be made famous by this person in itself or you know the same way that you described tyler is he brought upon he brought up a brand that was not necessarily under an underdog at the time but it just wasn't being as sought out as it potentially could be, um, which is also kind of like a, an example of like influencer culture, um, that being like a very prime example of that within streetwear. But I think, and and provide me a little bit of insight because you're, you're definitely from, from a different coast than I am. And streetwear is... I would say like streetwear's origins kind of revolve around the East Coast, that that New York City um, area of, of hip hop and, and punk is kind of what fuels what streetwear is or is where it's inspired from. So tell me what streetwear is like in, and I'm sure you, you were born and raised in, 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 in Boston, correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is like Boston's got it, especially like, sneakers boston's got a huge sneaker culture and i mean i feel like uh, just like new york is always just shitting on boston and i feel like a lot of people believe the hype um and you know maybe some of it's deserved but definitely not all of it but i mean we've had bodega and concepts which are like two of the most influential sneaker brands uh well sneaker retail stores at least um in the world and concepts has been around like probably close to like 20 years now. I, I can't even call it off the top of my head, but um, so that stuff has always been here. There's also, um, there's a lot, a lot of producers of sneakers are here as well. Like Puma is originally from the area. Um, Reebok has their world headquarters here as well as New Balance. Wow. I, I, so, I, I did I not think, know that. <laughs> yeah. That's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, Reebok's uh, world headquarters is like I could uh, walk there in five minutes from my job now. I remember the first time <laughs> I went to Boston, the one of two stores that I really, really wanted to go to was Bodega because of uh, of seeing it in 
and I forget what magazine, it might have been a Sneaker Freakers magazine back in the day, maybe like mid-2000s, and seeing the, uh, it was like, a, was it a fridge or like a fridge door that opened or it was kind of like a, a freezer door? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Snapple machine. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, a, it's the, like, the user interface of the Snapple machine. Exactly. I remember I, t- I told my parents that I wanted to go to this store and we had walked about, you know, two miles just to go find it and we were getting lost every second and I finally saw it and they're like, we walked all this way to go to a convenience store. And I was like, no, 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 wait, hold on a second. Watch this, watch this. And, I know, and there was a guy that he, he like, he like kind of stands in front as if it's like his, his shop. And then he opens it and you walk in and it's like, it's like fucking looks like Harvard. Like it's, it's just like so yeah. nice and like cherry cabinets and stuff like it was it was a crazy experience there was another one there was one more store or maybe there was a brand that was heavily um based out of boston it's it might have been was it raw do you remember a brand named raw no i don't but um it was yeah i can't recall that it was a skater I, i think it was a skate brand that I think was called Raw that was heavily based out of Boston. I might have to look it up, but I may I may be wrong. It starts with an R. I'm I'm, I'm pretty damn sure. But yeah, there were there were those brands that were out in Boston and and definitely the ones based out of based out of the East Coast. But I, I know that just just from experience in visiting, you know, I visited Boston, visited New York a handful of times, and there's something about the brands that are based off of the East Coast that have more of a lifestyle attached to them, whether it's directly or indirectly, that when you hear of those brands you have a very vivid imagination of what it's like to either work there or be a part of that brand. And I don't know what well, it is I mean, about that. So I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Like when I, I, upon first like discovering Supreme like six or seven years ago, like it immediately spoke to me. Like I, it, it was, you know, so I'm not sure like, I don't have everything cataloged in my head, but like, you know, the, the brand that purchases work with Damien Hurst, Basquiat, Raekwon, um, you know, the Smiths, like just tons of st- all stuff that I'm into. And like, it, you know, so it's associated with skate. There's something like as a kid I identified with so heavily. So I, I, I think Supreme um, will probably go down as like the brand that, you know, knew who its customer was the best. And I think that's maybe changing now, but I think when I discovered it six or seven years ago, that like, if, if you were into all that stuff, that brand, as soon as you saw that, you're like, this is the dopest brand I've ever seen because who else is into all this stuff all at the same time. And there's a whole brand based around it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. And we spoke about it in a past episode to say that Supreme will be turning into our generation's Louis Vuitton or Gucci. And, And what it is about that brand specifically is that it's not what they make that is cool. It's it's the lifestyle behind it that is cool. And everybody wants to be a part of that, whether we lived through the 90s or or we were 
born in the year 2018. We want to relive that era of basically not giving a fuck, hanging out with your friends and, and just, you know, going for it. And if they had a mission statement, if the brand was like an actual corporate company with a mission statement and values and all that shit, that's exactly what they would be talking about. It'd just be like, uh, fuck you pay me. That's like one of their favorite taglines to use in all of their apparel. And that's exactly what their values would be if they were a real, real legitimate company. Um, but let's okay. So let's get back to to well, the brand. Before your we brand do, I want to ask you, um, like about go ahead. You know, my, no, like, sure. What, go what about Stuzy? Like, I I love Stuzy. Um, and I, I have a ton of Stuzy pieces. Like, for, so like, you know, they're West Coast California brand, and like, you know, they're often associated with being like uh, extra large too. Like those. Do you think like for me, like I've always been like those are West Coast brands, and they're definitely like doing the same things that like Supreme does, maybe not quite succinctly communicated as Supreme does, but like I've always associated with like skate and art and music and just like a, a variety of, of subcultures kind of coming together. Um, do you, uh, do you think so about those brands from come from a West coast perspective? Oh, definitely. So uh, Stussy was always, I would say like before the hundreds came around, Stussy was one of our only West Coast brands at the time. Obviously, we had we had Huff, but only people in San Francisco could relate to Huff because it was called Huff, uh, Huff SF. That was the labeling on all of the apparel and all the hats um, and, and the colorways dictated that too. But Stussy, I'd say, was something that a lot of people from Los Angeles could relate to because we did have a store in San Francisco. We did have stores in Los Angeles, and they had they had a skate team, so skaters even related to it, and their surf culture behind it was was super relatable. So it touched on every single thing that made the West Coast what it was. And if you look at like old graphics that they did early 2000s they they pick up on on even rastafarian culture since that was part of you know the surfers surfers interest they picked up on hip-hop because that was the skaters interest and they did a very good job of just covering all bases of what people liked without even really trying hard and that's i think what's what makes them iconic is that they just they fed into what it what the people that wore their stuff um, fed into, or, or even the people that created it. And this goes for every brand that, that stands the test of time is when you're true to yourself and you just do things that you like, people will find the genuine, I guess the genuineness behind that and follow suit. So that's something that Supreme does very well with the, with the fuck you attitude and we're going to do what we like. Susie does that very well with just like attaching to things that they like and we, we buy into it and, it, and it's not necessarily buying into the gimmick because it really isn't a gimmick. It's just a lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. Cause I've always, I've always associated like those two brands, especially as being like the West coast ideals of, like what Supreme was doing. And I mean, without Stussy, there'd be no Supreme for sure. Um, and it's good to see your perspective from the, from the East coast, because, you know, 
me and me and Nate are both from, both from the West Coast, and that's all we've really known. And we kind of view New York from afar, and view Boston from afar. So it's good to hear a, a perspective of of how somebody from the East Coast perceives brands on the West Coast. Because you mentioned extra large, and that one caught me off guard because that one is like the closest to like a a life in like New York, where it's like very underrepresented, underwhelming, but has deep roots in, you know, that side of the country. That's something that to me, like has a certain level of nostalgia. Cause I remember seeing actually, and I, I never knew how to get it or where to get it necessarily, but I knew that like Mike D was associated with it. And I was like, I had a, a pretty, pretty probably unhealthy obsession with the BC boys at that point in my life. So, um, but seeing that and like, but that, you know, the BC boys makes sense 100% for the BC boys to have a streetwear brand all the way. They originated some of the, like the key styles and trends that, you know, a lot of brands nowadays still copy. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if Supreme ever put them on a photo t-shirt. All right. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and I want to talk to you guys about our event on 11-23 that's Black Friday the day after Thanksgiving you know the day that you go to your electronics stores and you buy the big ass TVs yeah that day we're throwing our first event our first party our first shindig with all of our friends we have a lot of friends that are DJs a lot of people that do merch and you know this is going to be a big big event for very like-minded individuals that are just very creative and just want to have fun man san francisco please come out and come support your boys of no chance at the payout on 11 23 that's black friday november 23rd it's gonna be a lot of fun i guarantee it if you have any questions about anything please reach out to myself this is ryan speaking let's get back to the episode we're gonna ask ross a little bit more about how we got into cambridge denim and why he decided to start it enjoy but let's let's get let's sure, get sure. on to you a little bit because that's why you're here. Let's talk about let's talk about your processes. You know, denim, like I said, denim is a lot of a lot harder to do than regular, you know, screen printing of T-shirts. Right. I'm, I'm just going to put it at that. It's a very, very um, for most people daunting because of the, the education yeah. behind it. They think they have to go to some sort of become a seamstress and, and go through some sort of schooling. Um, and it's a lot of education. So to so, so sort of tell me why you decided to, to take the jump. And, and I know you, 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 yep. you saw the necessity, but it's different to just act on it and, and get into it. So what was the next step after you realized, hey, these jeans that I'm, I'm buying are too pricey and I'm putting too You're much right. effort into to, yep. to making them for me and I'm going to and I'm going to well, do it I mean, myself. It was just that. And I just felt that, like, I wasn't the only person missing this, these, this pair of pants from my closet, you know, and I, I when I was uh, in my early 20s, I did an internship for um, for about a year for an urban brand that was based here in Boston called Antonio and Saldi which I don't believe is around anymore, but, um, in any case, um, so I kind of knew a bit about the process for getting clothes made and I knew I needed to find a pattern maker. Um, and I did find one in Boston and I took the prototype to him and 
So he makes a pattern. Um, we did three different prototypes. So I made three pairs of jeans. I ordered, and I mean, you can get anything online these days, and this is a good example. Um, I ordered some yardage of indigo Japanese selvage, and we made um, the three prototypes from that. And then when the third one, I got it, and I was like, okay, these are perfect, like, finally. Um, from there, once you're committed to that pattern, you send it off, you send the pattern to be graded, which is a digital process, and they make the sizes from that. And then once, um, once you have those sizes, you can get it manufactured in mass quantities, which is not necessarily something I do, but um, it, it's, you know, you need to make the sizes somehow. So um, that's, that's essentially the, what I did immediately after, like, being convinced that other people need these jeans in their closet as well. And you make it sound really, really easy. And I'm sure that, <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of difficulties that go into this process. And I know when it comes to manufacturing and finding the right yeah. people to get your stuff done, we're all very secretive yeah. about it. But my That's, question is, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, was, I got really lucky, I think, um, and I've heard horror stories from other designers where, like, you know, because, like, it, it's, it's that market is very boutique, like, it's very mom and pop, like, and I, and it, it if you're going to go to a big house, they don't, they're not going to want to deal with some up-and-coming designer or somebody who's never made anything before. Um, so, you know, if you can find a pattern maker locally, and it's somebody that you can get to and, and talk to and, you know, um, figure out whether or not that you can have a working relationship with this person because you're going to have to. Um, then if you can do that, then great. And I got really lucky because I was able to check all those boxes. But, yeah, I've heard horror stories of, you know, people getting um, prototype after prototype or sample after sample or whatever you want to call it. Um, and just them being wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and then them just giving up. So I was lucky. Yeah. I can imagine, I can imagine putting that sort of money into whether it be the denim, whether it be the production and with jeans, especially because the difference between an inch or an inseam or cut can ruin the entire sample. I've watched how to make it in America. I know what happened after they got their first sample done and then right. and Ben hated it. Yeah. And I felt for him. So that's so so I know what that means. I didn't do it myself, but I know what that means. And 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 that investment piece is key here because when you say you I don't know how the fuck you came across Japanese selvage denim and maybe you can go into into how you came across this because you don't you don't just walk into a into a you know a, a fabric store and be like yeah, can well, I get that funny you, know? you say that Ryan but what kind of investment <laughs> um, is that for you so I did you know I looked at a ton of stuff online there's actually a ton of places in LA um and you know, good for denim designers in LA because they don't have to pay shipping and they can just go downtown and pick it up. Um, so, you know, in, in, the, um, in the like design process, when I was kind of working with the tailor locally to make the changes to the, to the APCs, I was looking a lot 
that fabric because at this point I kind of decided I want to figure out how to make one of these from scratch. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe I'll try and sell them. We'll see what happens. But I was looking at fabric. There's a bunch of places online, like Pacific blue is one that comes off the top of my head where you can order yardage of Japanese selvage and, and with, uh, fairly low minimums. But, um, there's a huge fabric store in Natick, Massachusetts, which is about maybe 20 miles west of the city. Um, and I just was calling around fabric stores because denim's heavy, you know? I mean, um, a yard of denim, you know, most denim is Japanese salvage particularly is in between probably average is probably about 13 ounces per yard. So that's almost a pound per yard. So if you're buying, you know, 20 pounds, if you're buying 20 yards, you're buying like, you know, 16 pounds of fabric. So shipping 16 pounds on a roll is, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not ideal. So, um, yeah, I just called around and I called this store in Natick. They just have, they have a huge fabric store there. And I was like, do you have any Japanese salvage? People were hanging up on me. People were saying, what is that? I don't, I don't know what you're saying. I think you're making that up. Um, and they were like, no, we have a ton. We probably have more than anyone in New England. So I drove up there and they, they sure did. Um, it was all indigo and none of it had stretch in it. But um, I think for my, for my first pairs, that was okay with me. Um, and that's what we made the prototypes out of. And when I, when the first pairs that I sold, um, like through DMs or whatever, um, those were all from that same roll of denim. Wow. I had the finesse. So, so it came, it came pretty natural, yeah. came pretty naturally for you. Would you, would you say like the, I mean, the trial and error piece is obviously something that a lot of up and coming designers and, and brand owners they face. Would you say that, um, the first sort of round was you, you got out of there alive? I, you know, to be honest, you, I don't get much of a chance to talk to other people to do this, but, um, no, I, from the experience that I've had, like, um, I, so anybody, probably 90% of anybody who designs any clothes in Boston probably goes to the same pattern maker that I do. Um, so I do talk to other people over there, but nobody's, nobody's really making jeans. And I think like maybe other people have more experience in design of fashion business in general before they just start making clothes. But, um, I think a lot of people start off of doing printed blanks and stuff too and kind of get experience from that before they jump into doing cut and sew garments. Um, my father always told me that I do things the most difficult way possible. So I guess this is just another example of that. That's, 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 a, that's <laughs> such a great line. I love that. I love that because most people, in fact, they do start off with stickers, then keychains, then t-shirts, you know, there's a, there's a sort of standard, um, I guess, translation of, of ideas to make the easiest thing possible first and build your way up to what you're capable of doing. And you just sort of dove right in and said, fuck it, make, let's make jeans. And it's a, it's a very bold move, but from, from what we've seen, and I'm, I'm sure the people that are listening are going to see as well, 
it's it's great stuff and it's 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 awesome it's it's awesome to see somebody making denim because it is such a um an an, an undiscovered market that that a lot of people they they it, it's a little daunting, like I said earlier, and, and it's and it's great to see. Explain to the people now what's next. I mean, you what what products do we have in line? Do you have seasons lined up? What's your sort of your 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 methodology when it comes to how you approach year to year, season to season? So, month yeah, to my month. first season came out uh, June first, which is definitely a little later than uh, I wanted it to, but. Um you know, this isn't this, this isn't that easy. I did a twelve piece collection. Um, of course. So I did. Um, so all the jeans are the same fit. The, the fit is called the standard, and then the, the washes have different names. And I have so like a double black pair, which is the the black cat, and then I have the cold wash, which is a like lightened indigo. Um, and I did the summer standard, which is actually a Italian selvage chambray. Um, and I did a short in that as well. Um, and then I did the regular indigo Japanese selvage denim, which is called the standard. So I did, uh, I think that's five pairs of pants and I did three jackets, um, a t-shirt, a pin set, another t-shirt and a hat. Um, and all the all the jeans and jackets are uh, bench made by one person, and the only things that I generally have stock of before the order is the hats and t-shirts and the pins. So that's that's, that's the past, awesome. um, and I'm going to do it again. I'm not going to do another twelve-piece collection because. Uh, it was, it was maybe a little too exhausting, but I do have some new pieces coming out um, around the October, November range, hopefully. Um, I have some new jackets coming out and some new pants as well. And I am working on some new T-shirts in collaboration with another brand from L.A. So uh, I don't want to say too much on that, but definitely to be continued. That's, that's great. And I want to ask this question earlier, actually, because a lot of people like to, I put this on a very high pedestal. I put cut and sew made in whatever state that you're from is important. I put, I put that on a very high pedestal. Why do you take a lot of pride in having your stuff sourced and made in, in uh, Massachusetts? um I, I mean, I'm not sure. I like. I'm from Massachusetts, so I have a certain amount of pride out for where I'm from. But jeans, especially um, jeans, are part of American culture. You know, it's an American invention. Um, and you know, I'm not. I'm not going to do too much flag waving, but I think it's important as an American to like continue that culture, and especially the way that my jeans are made. I, I think. Um, there's a lot, it applies a lot to American culture and American quality. And I, you know, I really, it was important to me to do that. Initially I wanted to make the jeans with American salvage, but the last um, American salvage plant was closing shortly thereafter. And I just, the salespeople just weren't very helpful. Um, and so I couldn't really do And now the, now the only countries left that make salvage are Italy and Japan. And I think maybe 
China's getting into it as well as Turkey, but I'm not positive on that. But um, it, it just, you know, it made sense to get the Japanese because of it. It's so synonymous with quality. Of course, of course. And just it being constructed in in America, it, it, it means a lot to, to a lot of very, very, um, I guess, denim enthusiasts as well as streetwear enthusiasts because there's a certain... I say positive stigma. I don't know what the opposite of stigma is, even though the word stigma has sometimes have, has negative connotations. So there's a positive stigma towards made in America, cut and sew. And you also have that going for you, which is awesome. So that's a, that's a bigger plus, you know, you know bring up that price yeah, margin. Yeah, you know I, I mean, mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping the price margin as fair as I can. Um, and just because it's, it's a new product it's you know the brand has its own story and i think people you know they need to get used to it like it's a it's um you know it's artisan made jeans made for people who love sneakers and streetwear which i don't i'm pretty sure it doesn't exist otherwise um there's plenty of artisan made jeans out there like bowery blue or wh ranch um and you know they're they're keeping the traditions of making jeans as they did however many years ago with a single person making them from, you mm-hmm. know, the first cut to the last stitch. But, um, I think it's important. I think it's important for people who like streetwear to, you know, to have something that's for them. That's of this quality. Um, I would, and I mean, you know, not for nothing and I'm not gonna, uh, this isn't bragging boast, but like, I would put the quality, I would put the quality of my jeans next to anything that you could come up with. And I would be pretty confident. Let's put it that way. There you go. <laughs> That's right. You got to You got to yeah, put, put yourself mm-hmm. out there. You know what I mean? And it's good. You're, you're, you're a hundred percent correct. There's no company right now and and as high fashion and streetwear tend to blend together and that gray area becomes whole we you are starting to see that targeting of the our audience our the streetwear audience and you're right to say that there is there is no brand right now that is currently making jeans just for them you know just for us so um it's great that you said that and you know i don't want to i don't want to drag it on too long i want you to make sure that um, I want everybody listening to make sure that you go to um, to all the socials. Go ahead and, and shout it out. Let let them know where to find you um, and anything yep, else uh, you want to say. And you can everyone can find me at Cambridge Denim or CambridgeDenim.com. Um, primarily, the socials is IG, so that's where you're going to find probably the most uh, content out there. Um, and the one thing. The one thing that uh, Ryan touched upon a little bit that I think I think anybody who really likes clothes enough to listen to a podcast every week for an hour about clothes should be thinking about is be an educated consumer. Know where your clothes are made, who's making them, um, and you know w- what goes into that, and you know a little bit about how much clothes cost and and w- what it's worth to pay for what. Um, and then secondly, for that same person, know your sizes, know what fits you. Um, it's important when you're buying clothes off the internet to 
know what your inseam is, as you mentioned before. Know like what your chest width is. Um, go to a tailor and get this. And if you really care about clothes, I think it's time for people to start thinking about fit as as a top priority. And you can't do that without knowing these metrics. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you. Thank you, Ross, for, for joining us for this episode, man. It was a pleasure to have you as the very first guest. And I'm sure everybody listening has gathered a lot of information and is now very well educated in the world of denim, as well as maybe some East maybe, Coast. Maybe, man. Maybe. You never know. I mean, I'm not um, claiming to be the authority so on that, you. but if I can help, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that you were able to jump on the podcast with us. And I, Me and too, I Ryan. It. I really so appreciate um, the time and research that you put um, into talking here. I also enjoy the podcast week to week. And, it, you know, you guys kind of started doing stuff right around the same time that I started doing stuff. So even though this is the first time we've talked, I felt like we've been growing together. So I want to make sure you guys keep it up and maybe we can talk again in the future. No doubt, Ross, and we appreciate you for jumping on this week's episode, man, and thank you for all the love and support. We are big fans of Cambridge Denim, and you guys should be too. Go follow them at Cambridge Denim on Instagram. They have season two dropping soon, and you're not going to want to miss it. Be sure to follow us as well at No Chance Podcast so you're up to date with all episodes every week. Now, Is Nate going to be coming back to the podcast? You'll have to find out by listening to next week's episode. We'll catch you then. Peace. Peace.